So we've been cruising through the book of Acts, um, and you want to keep your thumb, your finger in, in that Acts 6 passage because I'll be referring to it as we go. Um, but so far, short version of what we've been through is that the, the disciples get the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Um, they come to understand the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, literally by seeing the resurrected Christ. And they begin to understand the significance of that event and what it means. And so they have a, what Christians call the gospel. But then Jesus tells them to wait before they start their ministry to, to reaching the, uh, the nations. And they're supposed to wait on the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, they wait, and the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost, uh, which is this big Jewish celebration. And so Spirit shows up. And the Spirit empowers the apostles to preach that gospel that they already had. And it is a, it's preached in such a way that people respond in faith. And so the Holy Spirit brings about these new Christian converts. But not only that, gathers these Christian converts into a church, into a body. Um, and they start to grow as a, as a church family. But not only that, they grow in their mission to others who have not yet heard the gospel. And so those are, those are really just good basics for how church should work. Um, and what Luke then begins to describe are some of the things that are going on in their environment that actually even grows and accelerates that experience that they're having, both in the church experience, but also in the mission that they're on. And so some of those things are um, uh, a, a purging of like corruption inside the church. This is what you heard. If you were here last week when you heard James uh, preach the, the sermon on Acts chapter 5, he, he tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, they were lying to the church, lying to church leadership, lying to God about their, their generosity. Uh, they were saying, we're giving all this money to the church that we got from selling this piece of land. And they're totally lying in order to make, you know, the, give themselves some kind of reputation in the church. And uh, they dropped dead. Right? And so it's, it's a pretty sobering <laughs> kind of a, a story. And if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, you can. It's on our, uh, our SoundCloud. But one of the things that Luke writes after that, uh, that, that happens in Acts 5.13, it says, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so it's this interesting thing where this really like kind of scary, sober thing happens inside the church to sort of purge it from unholiness. And then Luke says, hey, look, the mission is moving forward in an even more accelerated rate. Not only that, they're experiencing persecution. Um, and so in Acts 5, verse 40, it says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, that the Christ is Jesus. So again, you see persecution, which you would think would dampen the community of the church, would sort of dampen its mission, and it would kind of cause them to want to go underground. And it does the opposite. It accelerates, it expands the mission. So you have this purging inside, you have this persecution on the outside. 
And today we see another thing that happens to, in, in the environment of the church that helps it accelerate its mission. And the thing that happens is a problem that arises in the church. And that sounds kind of strange, right? Problems in the church are good. I mean, what, what, what's going on here? And this is exactly what, what happens. Um, it's, it helps the, the mission uh, grow. It helps the church itself uh, grow in maturity. And this is good to know. It, it's good to know that Christians have been having problems since the inception of the church. Right? This is encouraging to me <laughs> that the church, all churches have problems. This is, this is normal. Um, and this problem that's in today's passage is so serious that it threatens to split the church in half and send the apostles into early retirement, honestly. This is not just a, a minor thing. This is a serious problem that they're having uh, to face. And recently, I would say in the, in the American church, we've seen a lot of problems surface um, that, that were already there in a latent form, I, I would say. But because of a, a lot of things that occurred, COVID, political unrest, all, all kinds of things that were, were going on in, in uh, 2022, 2021, 2022, um, caused a lot of problems um, to, to, to surge, uh, to reveal themselves. Uh, I was looking at some of the statistics about uh, pastors and uh, their, their desire to quit over the last uh, two or three years. And so Barna Research asked this question of, of a whole bunch of pastors. Have you considered getting out of pastoral ministry just altogether, just quitting, forgetting, doing ministry, going to work for the post office? That's always my, like, plan B. I'm like, I'm going to go work for the post office, right? Um, and so in January 2021, which is before COVID, 29% of pastors said, yes, I'm, I'm thinking about quitting the ministry. In March of 2022, 42%. We're like, I'm quitting. I'm out of here. Right? And, and I, th- I think that, that, that's quite a jump. And it, it just shows like all the problems that were coming to the surface in the American church. And when they were asked why, the top three things, they, one was just, I'm just stressed. I'm just totally stressed. Um, the second one was like, I'm lonely. I just feel super isolated. And then third was just conflict in the congregation. And this was, really was what was brewing in a lot of congregations uh, over all kinds of things. Mass, the conversations about race, um, all, all kinds of different things that were just coming together in that time, uh, causing conflict in congregations. But it was not only pastors that were suffering, but, but people in congregations were suffering too. And, and so a lot of con- congregation uh, members we're leaving the American church over the last couple of years. And people are talking about this. How, how did this happen? Will they come back? Uh, all kinds of conversations like that. And, and the reasons are really hard to pinpoint. They are many. Um, I, everything that I looked at was just lists and lists of different things. People are bored with the church. People feel unconnected. Uh, people are finding a struggle to, to serve in the church. Um, conflict with others. Uh, scandals in church leadership, uh, bad teaching. I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on and on of reasons that people were experiencing problems in the church that was causing them to just want to quit and to, and to leave. Um, and every time someone is talking to me about the problems that they've experienced in previous churches, I, 
I started kind of having a little mini panic attack, right? Because I know when I was a young pastor and people would tell me about the problems that they had in, in previous churches, I would think, oh, well, I'm glad you're at my church now because this is a, our church is amazing and it's, you know, relatively problem-free. And so, but now as a, as a pastor who's been doing this for a while, I'm like, oh, my gosh, how long will it take before they experience problems in my church and they want to leave and talk bad about the pastor, right? Because it is just so common to have problems in the church. Um, so the solution to the problems is to, have, to plant a problem-free church, right? I mean, this, we're, we're planting. We're not even a year old, right? We just have to plant a problem-free. No, that's not, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. You put a, a bunch of sinners together, right? Even sinners that are saved by grace and are filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going to have problems. They're going to have I mean, you put husband and wife together, they're going to have problems, much less a whole group of people who are trying to live in a Christian covenant with each other as members of a church. There's going to be problems. There's going to be difficulty. And so on the surface, I think two two of the things that I draw from this, um, this is kind of the pre-sermon to the sermon, is that problems in the church are inevitable. I think that's good for us to hear. It's sort of like premarital counseling. It's like, hey, you guys are going to have problems. They're like, no, no, we just love each other so much. Like, no, you're, <laughs> you're going to have problems. And we need to, we need to know that. That's, there's some freedom in that to know that, okay, problems are going to arise. This is not abnormal. Um, but secondly, that problems can serve as a catalyst for growth, right? Growth in the church and growth in the mission of the church. That's exciting to me. That it's not just, oh, we got another problem, we got to deal with it. But it's like, oh, what could God do in and through the problem that would expand and strengthen the church? And that's exactly what we see in this, this passage. So we're going to look at three things. Every sermon has to have three points. No, it doesn't. But it, this one does. So the problem, the solution, and the results. That'll give you a little framework for what we're going to look at here in the passage. So the problem itself, Acts 6 Verse 1, again, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the problem, um, let's talk about the context of the problem and then the problem itself. So the context, Luke gives us some really good information here to help us understand the context because every problem has lots of layers and lots of context to it. And so one of the problems is that the church is growing. It's growing, right? Luke says that the disciples are increasing in number, um, and all growth is accompanied with growing pains. There's just just no way to grow without also feeling the pain of that kind of growth. And so, you know, the way that things work when you're 20 people or 30 people, and then all of a sudden you're, you're 100 people or 200 people, or for them it was thousands of people, those ways don't work anymore, right? It might have worked at, at when you're 30 or to 100 range, but they don't work when you're 500 to thousands uh, of people. And so evidently they had started a little feeding ministry to some of the widows in the congregation. And so when it was five widows, eh, it's, not, it's not that hard, right? It's like uh, apostles on their way to, you know, way home from work, they drop off some food, and it's, it's, not, it's not that big a deal. But when it's 20 widows, 
It's 25 when it's 30. And I don't know the numbers, but that's part of the problem. It's not the only part of the problem, but it is part of the problem. It's just the scale of the church is, is changing. And, and this is for, for those of you that you have leadership gifts and you like to think this way. Some of you are going to take a little nap during this time. It's okay. But here, for those of you that have leadership gifts, here, here, here's one way to think about when things grow and, and they change in scale uh, the same systems don't work anymore. Okay, so let's look, for instance, in the, in the, in the first uh, phase, you know, pastor's just like leader of the church, just le- leading one group. And it works pretty good. They, they kind of fit in the, in the living room, and, um, you know, everybody has access to the leader of the church, um, but then it grows, and it, that, that doesn't work anymore, right? I mean, the, the, the leader of the church could start two or three different small groups, but can't really pastor each of those persons in the small group like, you, like, like they were doing in the first group. And so it starts to, to change in scale, which means that the system has to change. So now, leader of the church is working with other leaders who are leading small groups, right? And so the system, the system changes. But even that is only going to work to a certain degree. So the scale changes even more. Then you, then you have a team of leaders who are working with leaders who are working with groups of people and discipling them and in shepherding them. But if, if it stays in the previous system, it's not going to work. It's gonna, it just falls apart. And people are like, why, why aren't, why am I, I'm not getting any kind of pastoral care and shepherding and help and I don't feel connected. And uh, some, oftentimes this is, is just about the organization of the church. And so this is, this is part of what is happening, and this is part of what we will have to face, God willing, at Rich Top Church. As we grow in number, those systems will have to change uh, as, as we go. And we've already had that. We've already gone from pastor's living room to multiple leaders who are working with people uh, in smaller groups. Um, also, part of the, quote, problem is that they're taking on more ministries. They're, they're not just doing teaching in the temple courts, and gathering from house to house, which is what was described back in the, the second uh, chapter, they've expanded in the number of ministries. So now they've seen this need because they've got widows in the congregation who need food, probably some others maybe outside the congregation that they're seeing in, in the community that need food. And so they're like, okay, we're going to start up a ministry for, these, for this feeding. And again, the apostles are kind of at, at the top of the chain here, and they're like trying to oversee that and, and, and carry, it, uh, carry it out. Um, so part of that uh, context of the problem is growth. Growth both in the numbers of people involved, but also growth in the numbers of ministries that are, that are being done. Again, I, I'm saying all this um, partly part to, to fire up maybe some of the leadership gifts in the room, but also to kind of prepare us. Because this is this, what's going to happen at Ridgetop. We're going to go from being just a, a few little, little ministries, and a, as we see needs in the community, as we see opportunities, we're going to be expanding that, and I am not going to oversee and execute all that stuff, right? Uh, it's going to require uh, people to, to step into these, these roles, and that, I, I think that's exciting. Um, so then there's the problem itself. Um, the, the problem itself is that certain widows are being overlooked. And so what, what's, what, what's being brought to the, the leadership is that widows that are culturally Greek, that is Hellenistic, are not getting fed. 
and those that are culturally Jewish are. So you got the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Um, and so this is, more, this is about more than scale. I think it's partly scale that's, that's increasing, but it's more than scale. There's a cultural thing that is in a relational thing that's going on. And this is where the potential for division is, is ripe, right? Like if, if it breaks, if that church splits at the, the, the Hebrew and the Hellenistic cultural divide, it's, it's going to do some real damage, and this is at ground zero of the church. This is the first church of all time, right? And if they can't get, and these are Jews, right? They're, 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 they're um, uh, culturally, uh, ethnically, I say ethnically Jewish, but culturally there's differences, right? And so if they can't work that out, they're going to have a really hard time working it out with culturally Gentile people who are not Jewish in any kind of, of way. Um, and so what is, is being brought to the forefront is, hey, there's, there's being preferential treatment that's happening here. Apostles, you are giving preferential treatment to Hebrew uh, uh, widows and over and against these uh, Hellenistic. Now, at best, and we don't know all the details of why this is happening, okay? So I think a lot of people try to put meaning into what's going on, and we really don't know why they're not taking care of the uh, Hellenistic Jews. Uh, but at best, the apostles are just better connected relationally with the more Hebraic widows and that network of relationships, right? And so that's, that's kind of their people. They have more uh, contacts in that relationship network. And so consequently, they, they hear about the he- Hebraic Jews that need food. And there's just a better communication channel. Um, at worst, um, it's downright prejudice. They're, they're thinking, we're going to take care of our people. And yeah, I know that, that these other widows have needs, but we're going to take care of our people first. Right? It could be that. I, I don't know. We don't know. But this is so easy for us to fall into as human beings, both just the sort of relational connection with our people, whatever is the definition of our people. It could be racial. Uh, could be uh, socioeconomic. Uh, it, it, it could be just cultural, could be language, right? We just gravitate toward people that are like us. We feel more comfortable with people that are like us. And Jesus was pretty clear with his disciples. This thing is going to go multi-ethnic. This thing's going to be transcultural, right? And so they're, they're, they're wrestling with that in this moment. Can we do this? Is, is, is the gospel... Big enough, good enough for us to work through these divisions that are beginning to kind of crop up um, in the church. What's good so far uh, in this first verse is that these culturally uh, Greek people feel comfortable going to the culturally Jewish apostles with a problem. That's really healthy. That's really healthy. And Honestly, in this ancient culture that's pretty hierarchical, pretty patriarchal, um, for them to go up the chain like this and say, hey, we got a problem, it's pretty, it's miraculous, honestly. It's pretty, it's stunning. And so they, they bring the complaint. There's so many things that could happen here at this point. I mean, the apostles, they, they could just like, hey, we're the apostles, man. Like, you just sit down, do what you're told. We, we were the ones with Jesus. I mean, it, it could really go poorly here, but it doesn't. It doesn't. So here we get to the solution. 
um, verse 2, the 12, that's, so that's the apostles, summon the full number of the disciples. So that's like church membership meeting. You know, like all the, all the people that are part of the church that are Christians, they're disciples. And they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then list off these other, um, these other names. Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to read them again. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and the proselyte of, uh, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, there is so much revealed in this solution. I, I was telling Melanie earlier, I was like, there's like 10 sermons in here at least. Um, but I'm not going to preach 10 sermons to you, just one. So here's some of the things. The apostles stick to their God-given priorities. That's part of the solution. It's really interesting. They stick to their God-given priorities. The apostles delegate responsibility to the congregation. That's part of the solution. But the apostles continue to provide oversight for the ministry. So it's really, it's really brilliant, um, and obviously led by the Spirit. So for, let's talk about each of those. So apostles stick to their God-given priorities. Um, they are very adamant that their priorities should be the Word and prayer. They should be teaching the Bible. They should be praying. Doesn't mean that that's all they do. Obviously, they do other things. I mean, they were feeding widows, so they're not opposed to doing some other things, but they're like, we have to prioritize the preaching and the praying for the congregation in so, so much that they're saying it would be wrong if we didn't prioritize these things, right? So they're very, they're very clear on this, on this uh, stuff. And what's happening here is the, the apostles are really the prototypical elders of the church. So what you're seeing is sort of church government organically coming out of this meeting. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's groundbreaking. Um, and so what, what elders do that we learn from other parts of the New Testament is that they, they teach, they shepherd, and they oversee. And, th and this is what the, the apostles are, this is how they're functioning in a church in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we see Peter writing to some of the churches in Asia Minor uh, in 1 Peter, and uh, he says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. This is Peter, Peter the apostle saying, yeah, I'm apostle, but I'm also I'm a fellow elder. So he's identifying as the, the, uh, an elder who is a teacher, shepherd, over, and, and he goes on to talk about it. He says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well. So now he's saying, I am an apostle. Okay, I, I've got some uh, cred that's uh, over... Uh, the, the elder cred, but I am an elder, right? As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So you see him talking elder language. He's saying, I'm a fellow elder, you do oversight, you do shepherding. Other places in the scriptures we see him saying, you do, uh, see the, the New Testament writers saying they do teaching. Um, 
for our church, uh, that's, this is a good thing for us to see because over time, we're, we're going to need to develop some elders that oversee and teach and shepherd the congregation, right? Now, that's my role right now, um, but we're going to need more than, than just me. And so this is something that to be praying for, to, uh, to, to be looking hopeful, hopefully toward, uh, because any healthy church is going to have not just one elder, but it's going to have multiple elders that are helping to shepherd and teach and oversee the congregation. So the, the second thing in this solution is that apostles delegate responsibility for ministry in the congregation. Um, in our consumeristic mindset, I think we kind of expect the apostles to just say, oh, we're so, so, so sorry that we failed you and uh, be kind of like customer service reps. Like, we're so sorry. Customer's always right. Um, we'll do anything. We'll, we'll add 10 hours a week to our schedule so that we can just make sure that you're happy. That's, that's not what they do, right? Now, they are acknowledging it is a problem. They don't say, no, that's not a problem. What, what, what's, what, what is with you guys? No, they're like, no, we, you brought it, we now see it, here's how we're going to solve it, right? And how they're solving it is giving responsibility to the congregation to solve the problem. Um, this is consistent with lots of other places in the New Testament, but here's one. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And so you see Paul teaching that these, these leaders have been given to the church to build up the rest of the congregation to do ministry, to be equipped for doing the, the work of the ministry. Sometimes I use this uh, kind of word picture of a, of a vortex to understand this idea, especially in Ephesians 4. Um, when you've only got one leader... Uh, you, you can only reach a certain amount of folks, build those folks up as disciples, and then send them out, right? And, and that, that mission that, that we're being asked to accomplish is pretty limited, right? But, but this is sort of the start of a, of a church. You can't help it, right? You start a church from scratch, it sort of looks like this, right? But eventually, as you build up more leaders, it widens the mission, Right? You're able to reach even more people, build up even more people as disciples, send out even more people on the mission. And so th th if it's a healthy church, this is what's happening. The, the numbers of leaders that are equipped for ministry is, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the mission out in the world uh, is expanding more and more and more. This is in part what we're seeing in Acts 6. We're seeing a mission that looks like this, but after they get through with expanding leadership in the church, then the mission looks like this. And then it just continues to, to grow and grow and grow. Uh, the third part of the solution that I mentioned is that the apostles continue to provide oversight for that new ministry. It's not like they're like, you guys figure it out, man. This is not our job. We pray, we preach, and you just do your thing and... Um, you know, if you have a problem, call us. We won't call you. It's not like that at all. They actually give them, here's some qualifications that we're insisting on as your leaders. They're like, we want them to have a good reputation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means they have a Christ-like character. 
And that Christ-like character has been vetted, (laughs) that people have seen them doing life in family or in work or in the church itself, and they're like, yeah, that person has a Christ-like character. doesn't mean they're perfect, but overall, they're they're exhibiting the characteristics of Christ. It says that they need to be full of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, well, it means they're spiritual people. They're attuned to what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives, what the Holy Spirit is doing in the congregation, and they're seeking to follow the lead of God through the Spirit. And so they're not just getting tasks done. Everything in church, inside the church and out on our mission, is spiritual. It's all, quote, ministry, right? Ministry is just administrating gospel grace to each other in the church or administrating gospel grace out in the world. It's all ministry. It is spiritual and so they're, they're like, not only are they, they have Christ-like character, but they get it. Like, they get that, that all work in the church, outside the church, it's ministry. They're, they're, they're full of the Spirit. And then they're wise. Um, they, they are able to figure out the practical details of this problem. Because <laughs> it's possible you could find someone who has great character and they're, they're full of the Spirit, but, we're like, but then you say to them, hey, we need to feed 100 widows every day. And they're like, I have no idea how to do that. Well, that's not the person you want in charge of that ministry. You want the person in charge like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I got a plan. And I can think of the people that would fill into that plan, and I got it. Don't worry about apostles. And, and then every day the widows get fed, and the apostles are like, amen, this is awesome, right? That's the kind of people they're looking for. For, for folks that will, will, will not just be Christ-like character, full of spirit, but actually be wise about. And again, this is part of spiritual gifting. For some of you, you love leadership. You love thinking about, you know, systems and coming up with organization and recruiting people to the organization. And God has gifted you in that. And that's the kind of people that they're looking for uh, to fill these roles. So these are what we would call the, 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 the prototypical deacons, so the apostles are acting like prototypical elders, and now these seven that are being chosen are the prototypical deacons. Deacon literally means servant. That's kind of cool, right? It's like, what, what, what's your job? Oh, yeah, my, my name is my job. I'm a servant. And so th- this is the beginning of um, these two offices in the church of elder and deacon, which is so cool, right? Because what God is doing in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, is through the ordinary people in that church. He is raising up the structure of the church that will then be adopted for the church ongoing throughout millennia of this idea of deacons and elders as offices in the church. We see this more formalized in places like 1 Timothy 3 which also talks about uh, elders in a formalized way. But here's the passage on deacons. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double, double tongue, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So you see some similarities there. They need to be, have a good reputation. They need to have Christ-like uh, kind of, of character. Um, they need to understand it's not just about task, but they're actually doing gospel ministry. They need to know the deep truths of the faith. This is happening in our church. 
more and more people are, are, are finding kind of their, their, their lane in how to serve. And it's really beautiful, right? I mean, that coffee and, and, and stuff that, that's there on the table, it doesn't just appear on Sunday morning, right? Jordan and, and, and Melanie were working on that this morning. The, the AV is not just magically running itself. We got our, our crack team back there, and they're like training a, a, a new one, it looks like, back there. Um, People are, you know, Noah's leading worship, inc- including other people like JR in, in the worship team. I mean, yesterday, I was kind of in two places at one time. I was over here. We're doing a baby shower for uh, our son and daughter-in-law. But we had five people uh, over there at uh, Rich Top Elementary, and they were doing, they were painting picnic tables in the hot uh, as volunteers. And so that was being handled. I, I, once I just, like, said, hey, have a nice day, they had it. They took it. And so it, this kind of thing is, is occurring in our church. We're, we're seeing some deaconing that's uh, starting to emerge. It's not formalized yet, but at some point there will be more formalized versions of uh, this kind of stuff. Now, what's interesting to me is a lot, I mean, I, I love this passage, but this, the results of the problem being solved, right? Verse 7, the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. That's a great report. (laughs) How are things going at the church? Well, the Word of God is really expanding. I'm assuming that partly it's doing that because the deacons are doing such a good job that the apostles are just concentrating on prayer and the Word. And because of that, word ministry is expanding, right? And because word ministry is expanding, more people are becoming Christians, more people are being made disciples. So now the disciples are being multiplied because word ministry is, is expanding because these deacons are doing such a great job. And then on top of that, Jewish priests, that I'm telling you, these are the toughest nuts to crack in Jerusalem, Jewish priests are becoming Christians. And it happens at this point in the book of Acts. And I think Luke puts this in there on purpose to let us know. It, it wasn't when they healed a lame man that the Jewish priests were like, sign me up. It, it wasn't when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead <laughs> and they said, sign me up. It, it wasn't when the, the, they you know, beat the apostles and the apostles are like, woohoo. We're worthy to be persecuted, and we're going to keep preaching. I'm sure all that had an effect. Don't get me wrong. But for whatever reason, them seeing the church work its problems out and, and see ministry advance, that's what caused these tough nuts to crack. And these Jewish priests were becoming Christians. And you're always going to see this. If a, if, a, if a congregation is truly healthy, and that does not mean problem-free, but a healthy, that the mission of that congregation is going to be healthy. These, these things are coupled. They, they cannot be. You can't have an unhealthy congregation that's like killing it on in their mission. But you can't have a, 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 a healthy congregation that's not really on mission. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. And so you see Luke putting, putting these two together of congregational life that's really healthy and ever-expanding mission, which is really 
healthy. Um, Jesus himself taught the disciples that it would work this way, right? John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you see him saying, love one another, and that's how people will know that you're my disciples. This will authenticate the gospel message to those outside the church. So there's a lot of lessons we can draw here. I'm going to briefly mention uh, six. I'm not going to talk too much about these. So one, as a congregation, we need to face problems. We need to face problems. When they come up, we don't want to ignore them. We don't want to pretend they are going to go away. I have done this so many times as a pastor. They say, oh, it'll just go away. If I, if I just ignore it, it does not go away. It gets worse. Um, early, early on, on in our uh, planting of a church in Massachusetts, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of college students, it was a lot of single working people, younger people, young families, and our finances were so horrible. <laughs> we did not have enough funds to do ministry. And we, we're literally like, okay, we're going to pay this bill this week, but we can't pay this bill next week. You know, we're, we're like shifting around bills. And, and I'm, you know, talking to the financial secretary that was a volunteer, and I'm like, hey, this pay this bill this week and not this bill this week, and um, it was really, really bad. But I, I wasn't willing to really talk to the congregation about that because I didn't want it to be a downer. You know, I want to keep it, keep it upbeat. Like, God's working. It's awesome. And then, you know, conversations during the week is like, well, he's working, and people are coming Christians, but our finances are in the toilet, you know? And so needing to just face that down as a pastor. Because it was in part, yes, their, their, their problem, because they weren't giving as generously, generously as they probably should, but it was also partly my problem. But I wasn't willing to talk to the congregation and say, hey, this is what's going on. Let's pray about this. Let's work toward solving this problem. Um, I think one of the things that came out of that for me was just the appreciation for getting the, the congregational members the official members of the church together on a more regular basis and just saying, hey, here's what's going on. Here's how we're doing financially. Here's what's going on next. Here's the help that we need to accomplish these things and experiencing kind of the collective responsibility for um, the church, which is my second point, um, that we want to embrace a collective responsibility for the ministry of the church, right? That congregation members are not customers, Again, we're so embedded in this consumer culture in America that we just bring that mindset to everything. And we just think, well, it's like a country club. You know, I pay my dues, and then the staff, uh, they take care of everything. And when I don't like it, I complain. That is not church. That is not church. The, the leaders of the church are called to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. So collective responsibility. Um, and I think this is a part of the culture here at our church so far. It really has been. Um, the, the mission trip that we took, for instance, to Central Asia, um, you know, we had a team of five, but we had a whole larger team that was supporting us in that endeavor. They were praying for us. 
that were giving generously to make that happen. I was like, this is, this is good. This is good that, that the church is rallying around this part of our, uh, our mission. But it's something that will be ongoing, right? And so when you hear of a need, you hear, hey, they're doing this thing, don't think, oh, someone else will do that. You think, okay, no, I'm a member, if you, if, again, and, and as a member of the church, right? You think, I, I have collective responsibility for this. How, how can I engage in this? Maybe I can't actually do the thing. If I can't, how can I support? If I can do the thing, I'm going to show up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Um, and that, that makes a, a huge difference uh, in the life of a church. Um, number three, and this is a little preaching to myself, church leaders should welcome input from the congregation. This is one of the things that's really healthy in this passage is you've got people coming to their leaders and saying, I have a complaint. I have something that I don't think is going well. It's not, it's, not doing, it's not honoring Christ. It's not consistent with the gospel. Like, hey, this is, this is something we need to talk about. And the apostles are like, yeah, okay, we see it. Uh, we didn't see it before, but we see it now. And so this willingness to, to receive uh, ideas, critiques, uh, complaints, and I think one of the things that they did that was so healthy is they went to the actual leaders and talked to them about it. So what happens in an unhealthy church situation is the congregation members talk to each other about it. They don't talk to the leader. <laughs> They're like, man, I wish, you know, when are they going to fix that air conditioner? What's the problem? Or, you know, whatever the complaint is. And you don't actually talk to the leaders. If you find yourself doing that, stop yourself. Stop yourself. And go talk to the leadership and say, hey, this is something I've been thinking about. It's an idea I have or a complaint I have or a critique I have or whatever. And, and do that uh, instead of just like talking uh, to each other. And if you ever take a, a business class, this kind of goes back to the, 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 the systems. Um, one of the, the little um, kind of thumbnail sketches of, of how knowledge works in an organization is that people on the ground, let's say they know 100% what's going on in the church or in their organization. The next person up, let's say it's a manager, they know about 50% of what those on the ground know. And then let's say the next person up is like the, the CEO, they know about 25% of, or 50% of what the manager knows, who knows only 50% of what the people on the ground know, right? And so the knowledge of the organization lessens as you go up the chain. This can happen in the church where the congregation members are talking about what's going on, but they're not talking to the leadership. And if, if, if there's any kind of organization that should be able to, to change that, it should, should be the church. Because the leaders, yes, are, are leaders, they're elders, they're deacons, but they're also members of the church. So you're both a member and you're, you're also a deacon and elder. And so you're brothers and sisters in a family and you should be able to know what the heck's going on. Now, at our stage, this is pretty easy to know what the heck's going on, right? right? But still, there's still potential for conversations to be having and not really talking to um, leadership. Uh, number five, not, not, we need to develop elders and deacons. I said this earlier. Um, can't do that too fast, right? There's a lot of warnings in the New Testament about uh, laying hands too suddenly, you know, and saying, oh, we need elders, here's an elder. Oh, we need deacons, here's a deacon. There are qualifications. There are biblical qualifications. So we're going to be patient about that, but we're also going to be praying, God, would you raise up 
from among us. You see that in the passage, right? It's from among us. They didn't go out and, uh, you know, go, go find some top shelf leaders somewhere to bring in. They really couldn't. They, they were the only church in, on the whole planet. Um, and so th- this is what we want to see. We want to see from among us um, elders and, and deacons. That's going to require a process of training, um, which I'm excited about. I, I really love doing that, helping folks grow into those roles um, as we go. And number five, um, that we're called to submit to church leadership. We're called to submit to church leadership. Uh, yes, they bring the complaint. They, they, they bring the critique. Um, but then the apostles lead. They bring a plan. They say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You choose seven from among you. Here's the criteria. You bring them back. We confirm them. We send them out. And everybody's like, all right, we're going to do it. And they submit to the apostles' um, leadership. Um, You see this exhortation of submitting to church leadership all over the New Testament. Here's one place, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So it's interesting, Paul ties together this esteeming and honoring leadership with being at peace in the church. I couldn't agree more. This is so, so important. The, the times when I've felt stuck in church leadership, where I just like felt like I could not lead the church forward, was when folks had brought a complaint, they'd brought some critique, Leaders had listened, and I mean listened and prayed with and listened and prayed with and then said, okay, this is how we want to lead forward in light of these complaints and these critiques. And the people were like, no, we're not going to follow you in that. And at that point, you're just stuck. And so in, in a healthy congregation, there's complaint, there's critique, there's new ideas, leadership listens, leadership prays. Leadership is receptive, and then leadership leads, and the congregation follows. And when that's the, that, that, when that's the pattern, it's, it's sweet. It's really, really healthy. And that is necessary because there's no way to get everybody on the same page. There's no way to do it. And so there's always going to be people who are like, oh, I think we don't do it this way or that way. But at the end of the day, there has to be a direction for the church, and the church leadership helps set that direction with the information that they're receiving from the congregation. So some, uh, another thing I think we draw. And so the sixth thing is we're all called to serve. We're all called to serve. Um, deacons are showing the rest of the church membership how to behave. <laughs> They're like church members on steroids. They're church members that are mature. That's basically what they're doing. They're not doing anything different than other church members should you know, be doing, but they're showing the rest of the church that we, we all are to be uh, serving. And so let's, let's serve. I, I, I mean, I think this is such an opportunity for us at this stage. And I know some of you are, are brand new and, and your visitors are like, Man, he's trying to sign us up. You're right. I am trying to sign you up. I, I, I think this is a very exciting to be a part of a, 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 of a tight-knit family that's on a mission, and we're all in it together, and we're working together. Um, and so 
Do we have some things, some needs? Absolutely we do, right? I mean, Jordan would love to have another person help her with hospitality and rotate, you know, every other Sunday. So she's not having to worry about that uh, every Sunday. Um, I would love for somebody to just kind of take over housekeeping in this room, right? Because it's me kind of vacuuming up whenever the crumb count gets high enough. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to vacuum. It's not the great, greatest system. Um, so some, some of you are like, yeah, I would love to attack this room and just make it, you know, spotless. Uh, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Um, coordinating community service. We have opportunities in the community, and I'm kind of like halfway coordinating them, not in a great, not, not in a really great way, uh, but as best I can. I'd love people to just take that and run with it and do the communication with volunteers and communication with the people that are in the community that are our contacts and just making that much more <laughs> efficient, effective. Um, campus ministry coordination. Like, like we're about to be, uh, we are a registered student organization at, at University of Texas. Um, so we're going to be setting up tables and doing events and there's a lot going on. And so having, having people involved in making that happen uh, is really going to be uh, necessary. And, and we do this um, because Jesus served us first. One of the ways that Jesus describes his coming to earth and dying for our sins is by calling himself a deacon, <laughs> a servant. He says, I didn't come here uh, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so this is, this is partly what's happening. If, if you're not yet a Christian, if you want to be a Christian, you receive the service that Jesus has done for you. It's not like a mutual, like, okay, Jesus serves me, and then I'm going to buy my salvation by serving him a little bit, and we'll kind of go 50-50. No, it's like you have to receive his 100% service for you, which was dying on the cross for your sins. This is becoming a Christian. And then out of gratitude for that, we serve. We serve each other in the, in the congregation. We serve those out in the world. And we're reminded of this concept every time we come to the communion table. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus is playing host to his disciples. This is amazing, right? The, the divine Son of God sitting at table with his disciples, and he's serving up food. And he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He uses covenant language that as he's serving his disciples and is going to ultimately serve them the next day in his death on the cross, he's saying, all y'all are going to become a covenant community of servants. You're going to serve each other. You're going to serve those out in the world in Christ's name. And so this is... Partly why we call this a worship service is that God is serving us. He's serving us in the worship service. He's serving us in giving us the word, right? Sometimes people are like, 
yeah, the whole preaching thing, we're just, we're just sitting in chairs, listening, it's not that effective. A- actually, by doing this, we're like exemplifying gospel grace. You're sitting and you're receiving the gospel through the word. And then in a, in a minute, those of you that want to participate, you come up, you're going to receive the bread, you're going to receive the cup. I'm not going to make you give me a dollar bill or, you know, a credit card swipe. or anything. It's, it's free. And it reminds you of how you got in as a Christ follower, is you received Christ's service, and it was a free gift to you, and you could have never paid for it in the first place, right? And that does something in us that causes us to then want, out of gratitude, to serve each other and to serve those in the world. So let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank, thank you for the picture of a healthy congregation, um, for the ways in which it informs us as a, as a congregation, Lord. And we, uh, as, as kind of a baby congregation, Lord, we, we pray that you would breathe the kind of life into our church that we see in this passage. And we admit to you, God, we are sinners. Uh, we, we can't pull this off by ourselves, myself included. And so we, we need your grace through the gospel. We need the work of the Spirit in each of us and in our congregation. And we pray that the word of God would spread. We pray that disciples would increase. We pray that the toughest nuts in this uh, neighborhood and city would be reached for the gospel. And so would you do that in and through our congregation uh, for your glory and for the good of the city. Lord, we pray your blessing over this bread and cup. Uh, May this time of communion with you and each other um, be something that really builds us up in faith and encourages us uh, as we walk with you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.